Welcome to episode 65 of The Men of Magic. Eric Froelich is my guest this week. He is a two-time World Series of Poker bracelet champion, along with being a person who knows the past of magic, along with playing in part of the present. We talk about the importance of poker, the importance of magic, and the importance of family. And also we get to have some fun with some of the biggest names in poker. Enjoy the show. This week's guest on the Men of Magic, two-time World Series poker bracelet champion, magic specialist. You will see him constantly on the Pro Tour at every major event. Eric Froelich, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing great. Many people compare the life on the poker tour to the magic tour. Is that a fair comparison? Not really. Um, the games themselves have a lot of similarities, but um, the game of Magic, it has a lot of key differences. Like if you're going to be a poker grinder, you have to be okay with the fact that you know you can show up to work every day and you know you might show up with thousands of dollars in your pocket and you're going to come home broke, which you know is one of the things that makes poker such a challenging career and very hard for people to be able to keep an even temperament and just go about their lives without, you know, having some major issues. It's it's not like a normal job. Like, people can go into their work, be miserable, but, you know, you're going to get a paycheck at the end of the week. There's a reason you're doing it. There's always that light at the end of the tunnel, you know, with almost every profession. And poker is very different. You go on a dry spell, and not only do you not get a paycheck, but you've lost everything you've earned. And, uh, magic, you know, it, it doesn't it, – it can be similar. Obviously, you can show up at tournaments. You Pay whatever the entry fee is, you know, you can lose. But magic, I don't think too many people are necessarily doing for a career. You're talking about people who are doing it in their youth as a grinder, going to different events, getting, you know, their appearance fees for Star City Games or for the Pro Tour Grand Prix. And, you know, this is something that they do more for fun. Like, there are different ways to branch out and create your own industry within magic. You know, you've seen people like Patrick Chapin, who's created his own brand, essentially. And, you know, people like Louis Scott Vargas, who can you know, find different ways inside the magic community by running a website or, you know, doing different things that involve media that you can actually, you know, make a profit. But you don't see too many people who are planning on having a wife and kids and own a home and do all that, and they're planning on their career being magic. It's just not a really a feasible job. So uh, you see a lot more people who are trying to make poker their actual life and have it be something that they plan on doing for a very long time. You've won two World Series of Poker bracelets. Describe how difficult it is to win a World Series of Poker bracelet. I don't think that the difficulty involved with winning you know, any major tournament is very easy to put into words. It's hard to really, you know... It, there's so many different factors at play. Like There are so few events. I mean, it... it in that respect, it's going to be very similar to, I guess, how people are feeling when they win a pro tour. It, it's extremely difficult. Like, it's something that if you do regularly, that if you're playing all the World Series events and you're playing at the top of your game, it's something that you think that you will reach at some point in your life. Not everyone does, but, you know, a lot of the, you, don't, you don't see too many of the best players in the world who haven't been able to find a way to, you know, win one at some point. And it's very similar with, like, the pro tours. There's just not that many of them, and there's, you know, some elite players, and if they're playing all the pro tours... They will have success in time. But, um, you know, it's extremely difficult. You're talking about 1,000-person fields. You're putting up tons of money. There's a lot of stress involved in that. Just, you know, the World Series is a huge grind. Of, you know, it's a month and a half to two months in Vegas where, you know, I live here now, so it makes it a lot easier. But, you know, when I won my bracelets, I lived on the East Coast. I was living at a hotel for these two months, and that wears on you quite a bit. And so if you're going to be going down spending thousands of dollars each day to play a tournament, you know, for weeks straight, you know, they only pay 10% of the field. So 90% of the time you go down there and you come back with nothing. And so you can lose tons of money real, real, real fast. And so uh, there's a lot of psychological elements at play. There's a lot of financial elements at play. Then you have to be, you know, playing your best game. You have to not get unlucky. You probably have to get pretty lucky at some point along the way. And, you know, everything really is to come together all at once to actually finish in first place. How much has playing Magic affected your ability to 
grind out these month-long sessions, or has it done the reverse, been able to help you play Magic better because you're used to doing the days of poker? Well, I think that my stamina for a Magic tournament has definitely improved by having played the long grinding days of poker. Uh, it's hard. I don't think people realize how big a mental exercise it is and how uh, how much it wears on you playing multiple days straight of you know either game where you really have to be thinking. Like it's it's very mentally taxing to go through you know a tournament like Worlds where you're going to be playing all day for like three days straight for Magic, or for a poker tournament where you're playing you know twelve hours a day every day. It's it's a lot. Like it's hard to stay on top of your game. It's hard to stay focused, and so. Uh, I think that starting with Magic helped make it easier for me with poker, and now having all the experience in poker makes it easier for me now that I, you know, I didn't play Magic for many years until, you know, last year, and so I think it's made it a lot easier to uh, transition back as well. Have, have you been able to, what mental tricks do you use to, how do you survive those hours and hours at the table and still remaining focused? Yeah, I've come up with different systems. Um, when it comes to poker, like, I'll, I'll always have my iPod with me, so... I try to sometimes pay attention to the table and you, you get people talking, you, you know, learn a lot about them, especially early on, people you've never played with. You know, you need to figure some stuff out. So I'll try to keep it away for a while. And, you know, obviously for the first couple hours, it's not too hard to keep your attention focused on one thing. But, you know, as the day drags on, as you already have the information that you need and, you know, you really want to be able to, you know, keep your mental energy high, I will turn to the iPod. I am a constant texter. Like, I spend as much time as possible basically texting my girlfriend like when I'm not in the hand. You know, I'm paying attention to the hand. I'm watching what's happening. But, you know, I like the fact that my brain is able to take a bit of a break and relax. And, you know, the conversation's always, or at least hopefully, always lighthearted and, you know, just joking around and having a good time. And it's good to have, you know, that person there who is, you know, supporting you and also, you know, a bit of a distraction in a good way. Like, you know, she always asks... You know, am I distracting you? You need to stay focused. You need to do this and that. I'm like, no, I, I need this. Like, this is great for me. Like, when I'm in the middle of a hand, when, you know, big things come up, I, my phone's obviously away. Like, you can't be texting when you have cards anyway. But uh, I think having those type of things for, you know, me personally really helps, and I'm sure other people do similar things. Now, as far as magic is concerned, it can be extremely difficult if you don't, if you go to time every round. But if you don't go to time, it's not quite the same as poker where, you know, you're not playing for hours and hours straight. You're playing, you know, you have a 50-minute round. Most of my rounds, I play extremely fast, are over, you know, fairly quickly. You know, probably average time is closer to about half an hour. And so I usually have 30- or 40-minute breaks after every round, which, you know, allows you to refresh, to hang out with your friends, to just kind of, you know, not be taxing your brain. I think if you had to go straight and you're just playing magic, or magic after magic game, and never taking that mental break, uh, I think it would be pretty close to impossible, but, you know, having that opportunity to uh, wind down a little bit at the end of each round, I think, is really important for me. The ultimate prize of the World Series of Poker is obviously winning the main event. What is the most difficult part of achieving major success at the main event? Uh, I think that the people involved is pretty much the only real obstacle. Uh because there's so many people involved, it, it creates a bunch of things that people don't think about that why good players, quote unquote, are don't do especially well. I mean, you're talking about a hundred of the best players, maybe two hundred of the best players out of you know an eight thousand person field. It's just it doesn't matter how well you play very often. You still need to not necessarily quote unquote get lucky, but you need to avoid getting unlucky so so many times that it just involves getting lucky. Like if you get all in with aces versus deuces. You're only a four to one favorite to win. You know, this happened three times in a row. Odds are you're going to lose one of them and you'll be out. Like, it's just, it's just hard to have the best hands hold up. It's just not that likely. And so you have to really avoid getting unlucky and you have to keep doing this for like nine straight days. And, you know, it's what we were just talking about. It's just mentally taxing. I think a lot of people struggle. It's very hard to stay patient when you, you know, maybe you haven't gotten dealt any good cards for now like three days straight. Like, it's hard to keep your patience and not try to force things and not make a huge mistake. And so, uh, you know, the main event definitely gives people the opportunity to screw up a lot and throw away their money because it's just draining. And so besides that, you have to get through all these players, and each time that you're just not that likely to win. Like, even as an 80% favorite, you know, pretty much as big as they come, 
if you don't win 80% favorites 100% of the time. Your full tilt poker teammates are like the who's who in poker. What is it like to be a part of such a great collection of talent? Yeah, um, well, I'm not a part of them anymore. So with Black yes. Friday, April, uh, the site got shut down, and it turned over. Turned out that you know some people that I considered friends basically screwed over a lot, a lot of people for a lot, a lot of money, myself included. And so, you know, I, I don't associate with that brand anymore. And you know, I'm sad for all the people that have been affected, obviously. And so, yeah, it's it's not really a good situation. Who do you who represents you now? No one. No one? Okay. That's just I mean, curious. There really isn't much representation in poker right now. Now that the online sites are illegal in the United States, they really have no reason to market a single player who lives here. And so, you know, there's really no more poker on TV except for the main event on ESPN. Most of the other poker shows have been canceled, and so there really isn't sponsorship money or opportunities that really exist as much anymore because of, you know, the laws that have been passed and the actions by the Department of Justice. So, A lot like Magic with the side drafts. Some of the best games of poker are played with your friends. Talk about some of your favorite moments. I'm not sure that I've ever played poker with my friends. It's just not something that we've ever really done. Um, I've talked a ton of poker with my friends because a lot of my friends are the actual best poker players in the world and you know, I like to consider myself to be at least close to that category, you know, something I aspire to be, but you know, I might not be there quite yet. Um, so we'll, we'll deal out hands and talk about how we might play them, but we're not actually playing against each other. It's hard when poker's your career to try to, like, do it for fun among your friends. It doesn't necessarily work much. And also, you know, a lot of people say, oh, just play for smaller stakes, play for no money, but nobody takes it seriously then, so it's not really you know, that intriguing a game, and we're all pretty competitive, and so it, it doesn't really work out that well. So I don't really do it as much. I read about an article that was talking about how when you won your first bracelet that you took the money and took care of your brother for his education and your family. How much does family mean to you? Family means everything to me. Uh, I've always, you know, felt that way. I feel like my upbringing was great. I, I think I had parents who cared about me more than anything that have always put me first and always will put me first. You know, I, I think my parents would sacrifice everything they have and themselves just to, you know, just for me to make my life better to, you know, they'd sacrifice themselves to save me. And I feel like I would do the same thing for them. Like I would do anything to give back to my family. Um, I don't feel like I could be in the position I'm in today without the support of them. And, just with everything I've done, even, you know, I dropped out of college to play poker. My parents supported me. Like, they, they were like, if this is what you think is, you know, the best decision for you, we're completely on board. My dad brags about me, you know, to everyone I think he knows and his family and his friends and his people at work. I can always hear him talking about, you know, what his son did and what, you know, newspaper article I might have been in or TV show or tournament I did well in, whatever it may be, like, you know, hearing your parents be so supportive and so proud of your achievements just makes it all worth it. And so there is nothing in the world I wouldn't do for them. And, you know, I have one little brother, and he's, you know, just a great guy. He's always been just a terrific kid and has grown up to be, you know, a great adult. And went to the same school as me, got married last year, and just living the life. And so, uh, yeah, they're, they're, my family is just everything to me and always will be. The only thing that's ever really mattered to me in life, the only, like, goal, people always ask you, what are your goals? You know, it's been a question that's been asked to, like, write a paper about in fifth grade back to, you know, being 10 years old. And the only real goal I've ever had in life is to be able to have a family and be able to provide and make them happy. And, you know, that's what's important to me. Like, I feel like there aren't a lot of, you know, really big impacts a lot of us can leave on this world. I don't know what kind of, you know, legacy I might leave from my life, but... Being able to have kids, being able to have a family, being able to, you know, all, all that kind of stuff is the thing that's always been the most important to me. And so, yeah, I, I think family is just everything. That's a great statement. And myself being a husband and a father of three kids, you learn so much more to appreciate what your parents do for you when you become the parent. Because then all suddenly you start doing the same things your parents did for you. And it's just this amazing, wonderful thing. It, it's something when that day comes for you that you will thoroughly enjoy. And just oh, after no. you. So 
Do you have a goal to be in the Poker Hall of Fame? No. No? I mean, clearly anything that I do in my life is, yeah, I don't really yeah. start things that I don't plan on finishing. Like, if I start getting involved in something, if I start, if I take up an activity, it's because I don't necessarily have to be the best, but I want to be among the best. And so I'm not, I'm not going to dedicate a lot of my time and my life to something that I'm not serious about. It, it just doesn't happen very often with me. And so, um, you know, poker is something that it, if you go back and watch or read some of the early interviews I did when I, you know, I won a bracelet when I was 20 years old. And the questions that kept coming up is like, you know, this is incredible. Nobody's ever done this. Like nobody's ever won, you know, earlier than 22. And now this is like the first tournament I was able to play as the youngest to win. And so it became like a big thing. And the similar questions kept getting asked, like, you know, what does this mean for you in the future? Like if you're winning bracelets at 21 and you have two bracelets by the time you're 22, like, are you going to be one of the best of all times? Like, no, definitely not. Like, I, I don't take poker that seriously. It's fun. I'm okay at it. Like, I didn't consider myself to be even good, let alone great. You know, as time has gone on, and I, I didn't plan on ever playing poker professionally at that time. Like, once I won the second one, it kind of was something that fell into my lap with sponsorship opportunities. And, you know, I started to realize that maybe I actually could play the game. And uh, at that point, I still wasn't very good. But, you know, I, I realized that with so much to learn with, you know, all these opportunities that I had available at that point that it was something I could do. And so I started taking it more seriously. And, you know, now I think that I'm among the best players. I don't think I'm anywhere near the top, but, you know, I feel like I'm extremely competitive and there aren't very many fields I can enter where I'm not going to be, you know, plus EV, you know, one of the favorites, whatever it may be. And so, sure, I would like to make the Hall of Fame of anything that I participate in. Like, uh, it's it's great. Like, it would be great to be honored to be one of the best, but at this point I'm so far away from that that it's not something I've ever even thought about. You also said in that article that Phil Ivey is the best poker player. Talk a little bit about Phil. I mean, Phil Ivey is very good at all the games. Like He just has a knack for understanding exactly what his opponents are thinking. He just really doesn't make mistakes, it seems like. And, you know, that's really the biggest key to poker. People ask me, like, you know, what's the one big key I need? What am I missing that will make me a good poker player? And it has to do with patience and, you know, avoiding those mistakes. Like, the reason people can get ahead in poker is waiting for their opponents to make mistakes. And, you know, if the cards even out over time like they're supposed to, then it's going to be the pe- person that makes the least mistakes that's going to win the most. So it's really just all about that. And, you know, the fact that he's able to do it across, you know, so many different games that he was a great horse player and a great no-limit player and a great PLO player and a great tournament player, you know, that makes him, if not the best, certainly among the best. And So, I mean, he's just a winner. He also seems to have a very uh, easygoing personality. Is that true? Um, I don't think he's necessarily that easygoing. Like, he has a very good way of getting what he wants. And, you know, he has a lot of money and he's good with his words and so, uh, you know, he's able to get most of the things he wants, but I don't know if I would describe him as easygoing necessarily. A lot of times when anybody does something at a high level, they tend to look, sometimes they'll look overstressed. Kind of at the point in his life, like you're watching him play tournaments for $200,000, and when you have tens of millions of dollars, it's you can be a lot more relaxed about those situations than you might see most other people. And so, uh, you know, I think some of it has to just do with that kind of thing, he's already has so much money that there isn't quite the same pressure on him as there is everyone else. The best part of being a poker professional is? Probably the freedom. I mean, part of the reason why this was kind of a profession that I leaned towards was for the reasons that, you know, we just talked about a few minutes ago. Like, all I care about is family. Like, family is the number one thing to me. Like, this has been able to give me a lot of financial freedom, which will also give me a lot of freedom and just... I choose my hours. I'm my own boss. I don't have to answer to anyone. You know, when I have a family, if I have a family down the road, I can go to the soccer games. I can go to the dance recitals. I can do whatever I need to be doing to play the role that I want to play in my family's lives, you know, based on the freedom that the profession that I've chosen has given me. And so as long as it's, you know, financially profitable or financially stable in some way then and I, you know i can go about continuing in this life then uh 
you know, it's, it's a good choice for me because it allows me to do the things that I want to do. You have a love for sports as listed on your website, frolicpoker.com until your injury and you also wear jerseys how much passion do you still have for sports um sports is probably the biggest thing in my life right now besides you know my girlfriend and my friends and my family uh now that i'm not playing as much poker because of you know not being legal online i really haven't played that much poker since the world series and so uh you know, I spend a lot of time analyzing and watching baseball, basketball, and football. It's something I've always enjoyed and trying to figure out some way to, you know, make money involving sports is something that, you know, I've always looked into and has always been really interesting to me because, you know, those are the things I most enjoy. Um, yeah, that's pretty much like the thing that I like the most is just coming back, chilling out and just watching a game like it's just, I don't, I don't know. It's just how I've always been. It's been one of the few things in life that I consistently enjoyed. And so, well, I haven't really worn any jerseys in the past few years. Like all, all, everything just about sports and the competitiveness and the intricacies and like even down to the minor details has always been really interesting to me. Do you have a specific favorite team in a particular sport? Yeah, I mean, uh, now, I said the jerseys all the time. I'm always wearing the Mets hat. The Mets are, you know, my favorite team. And the Jets as well, and the Lakers. The Mets are going through a rebuilding process. You know, they've been, I mean, part of what drew me to being a Mets and Jets fan, my, my whole family is from New York. My, my dad is one of seven. He's got six brothers and sisters who are all big Yankees and Giants fans. And so he was the one who decided to be a Jets and Mets fan, you know, growing up. When he was growing up, like, the Jets and Mets are always terrible, except for, you know, 1969 was the one time he, you know, had his year where they both were able to win, but, you know, it's a, it's a pretty rare thing for either team to be successful, and so there's something about them that, you know, drew me in when I was, you know, real young, like five or six years old, that, you know, I've always been interested in cheering for the under. Uh, yeah, my, my dad being a Jets and Mets fan certainly contributed to me becoming, you know, a Jets and Mets fan growing up, and, I've been a Kobe Bryant fan since the first time I've ever seen him play, and so, uh, and I, I was actually a Shaq fan, LSU and Orlando. So once that became a team, it, it was you know all I've ever cheered for for many many years at this point. So I was been a huge Laker fan as well. How much do you get to go see? At, like, do you go see different games of us, like different Laker games, or you know go see a Met game or something like that? It's been uh, a while. I, I didn't go to any Mets games this year. I went to a couple games when I was at the Borgata for a tournament last year. Uh, I ended up going up with my dad and you know a couple friends. And uh, you know I, I've been to a handful of Laker games, both at Staples Center and on the road. Like you know when they played Detroit in the NBA Finals, one of my good friends is living in Detroit, so I, I got tickets to go to those games and. You know, I've, I've been to a handful. I haven't been to as many games as I might like to go to, and it's not necessarily easy to find people to go to games when I'm living in Vegas now since the closest team is many hours away. But, uh, you know, it's something I enjoy. But I get almost as much enjoyment out of just watching it on TV that I don't push for it too much. And, you know, I'm sure I'll be at more games in the future. My girlfriend's a Laker fan too, so that helps. I can probably trick her into going or something. Well, let's talk a little magic here. Uh, you've had major success in Magic in the team limited format, which his teammates is John Finkel and Brian Kibler. What made that work so well? I've had success in team constructed too, so let's not uh, forget okay. that. Okay. I made top four with Rich Owen and Bob Marr at the last team constructed tournament, which was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I've had really good teammates. Like I teamed up for the first time with uh, Kyle Rose and Camille Cornelison, and uh, we got, I think we played uh, GP Columbus. We got fifth. I think we, we missed the top four, and then got top eight at Pro Tour New York. That you know, the first time the Phoenix Foundation won. And um, yeah, I, I've just had good teammates ever since. And you know, me, Camille, and John teamed up for a couple tournaments. We got second at you know Grand Prix Amsterdam, and then me, uh, John, and Brian played in DC together, and again made top four. Uh, the team limited for us is something that has always kind of come naturally to me. It's something that I found to be the most enjoyable. 
certainly having teammates who are going to be favorites in every match we play makes it, you know, a lot more fun. But, uh, you know, the draft format and being able to allocate cards to each deck and working together and really finding ways to, uh, you know, make the team successful. It's certainly not an individual game anymore at that point. It's just, I don't know, that everything about it was just great. Like, I've never met anyone who didn't think that the team format was by far the best events they've ever had. Even the players today who really, you know, haven't had as much of an opportunity to play them. You know, like I'm good friends with Luis Scott Vargas and the like, who really, you know, Team Limited kind of was gone before they hit the spotlight. And so they've never really had the same opportunities that a lot of us have had who played, you know, 10 years ago to, you know, enjoy this format. And it's something that I know that just everyone really, really wants to have. So if the expanded schedule comes out and this comes back into a GP format or gets put into a Pro Tour event, uh, would that be an enticement for you to go show up and play? Yes, definitely. I mean, it, it would be hard-pressed to uh, to miss a, a team event at this point. I mean, like I said, me, John, and Camille, I got John Finkel to travel out to Amsterdam to play a Grand Prix. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, anyone who knows John knows how hard it is to get him to go in his own city to necessarily play a tournament. You know, especially back then, he really wasn't big into traveling. This was kind of just after he stopped playing as much. And so, uh, you know, it, it's just the team events are just so good and it's just so much fun. And I, I don't know, it's just, it's great to be able to like lose and still be able to win, of course, but just being able to be happy for, you know, a group of your friends who are all doing well and helping you do well. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's just very different from, normal magic, and so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think the events are the absolute best. Speaking of things that they don't have back that they might should have, is you had an incredible run at the 2000 Masters Booster Draft with a field like that. What was that like, doing as well as you did in that field? Yeah, that time was a lot of fun. Um, that was whatever the tribal set was. <laughs> was it Odyssey? Odyssey? draft i'm not sure i'd misform wall and lava mancer skill but uh yeah that, that one was fun part of the problem with the master series especially that one in particular like because we played out like the top 64 was it, yeah the top six we all played on um on thursday before the pro tour the first couple rounds and i had won both of them so i was guaranteed you know however much money six thousand dollars whatever it was and so i really didn't put any effort or really focus into the pro tour i kind of showed up the next day with with a deck that someone just handed to me without really practicing and you know really didn't give it my all whatsoever in the tournament and did very poorly and didn't care because i had a match for you know five thousand dollars that night and so you know the pro tour kind of just became secondary and so i think in that respect it can be a bit of a problem i mean that could have also just been my mindset you know as 17, 18 years old and having already won, you know, $6,000 was pretty exciting. So, uh, you know, it's, it's an event that's a lot of fun that I think that, you know, if they could find a way to market it so that fans could watch it and enjoy it, you know, seeing the best players in the world play that kind of format could be a big thing. But, uh, you know, certainly I'd like to have it back. It was also just free money, which was pretty great. If they did that, say, uh, instead of, I know they, they like to do Grand Prix, the Grand Prix right before Worlds. But let's say that weekend before Worlds, they would do a tournament like that because all the people are going to end up going to Worlds anyways. Would that be something that could be a draw if they made it like, unlike the Pro Tour now that'll be closed? Let's say they made that open to the public and people could come see it and it would be on GG's Live or Wizards of the, you know, Wizards Network. Do you think that would be a draw? I mean, I'm sure it would be a draw in some respect. Like, it, it also wasn't a tournament that takes that long. I mean, you're talking about it was six rounds of single elimination. So, you know, you don't necessarily need, like, a whole weekend or anything like that. I, I think you could actually find a problem just because I think there are a lot of people who are certainly going to the GP before Worlds, but, you know, some of them have to work and can't necessarily take off, you know from Friday to the next Monday to play both tournaments. So it might create some issues, and it's also something that can, you know, really just be done in one day if needed. Like, the Masters then, the reason it took so long is because they had, you know, the Grinder, which was, I don't even know, six rounds of single elimination, something like that, where the top two spots made it to the Masters. 
And so then they only played two rounds that night and two rounds the next night and then finally on Sunday to finish it. But, um, you know, there's different ways they can structure it. I, I certainly think that you're never going to find a fan of Magic who isn't interested in watching, you know, the best players play against each other for money. Like, that's just interesting, I'm sure. If anyone's interesting to me, I don't necessarily consider myself as big a fan of Magic as a lot of people do. And certainly interesting to me. So I imagine it would be a pretty big draw. But, you know, whether that makes it enough to be worthwhile, I have no idea. World's coming up. How do you start preparing? You know, I have a really good test group that, you know, we've been doing well for the past. I guess I've been with them since about Worlds last year. And, you know, Luis Scott Vargas, David Ochoa, uh, Raptor, Kibler, Brad Nelson, Conley, you know, uh, some of the, the Czech guys and Shuhei and, you know, just Ben Stark and a bunch of, you know, really good Magic players who, you know, we've done really well the past year. And so I'm going to go out the week before San Diego and going to stay at Luis's house. And so we'll get, like, you know, a good week of testing there and fly to San Diego, play the Grand Period, and then have a few more days before Worlds actually start. So hopefully, you know, we'll have some good stuff by then. It's not necessarily that easy to test, you know, right now without all the cards available online. And I think that that's true for a lot of people that it's not necessarily easy to get a group to play in person and really get some good testing in. So you can't necessarily test all your ideas this early, which is kind of unfortunate. But, uh, you know, luckily for us, we're going to have, you know, a dozen people out in California for a couple of weeks beforehand. So, uh, should be able to get some good decks going. How much fun is it to do those? Because when they were at Pittsburgh preparing for Philadelphia, you'd hear the little stories of, Kibler getting hit in the eye with a frisbee, or uh, Conley making a deck with um, some ridiculous combination of cards—just little things they would leak out on Twitter. How much fun is it to do those? Um, it's pretty fun. I mean, not for those reasons, actually. For me, I mean, the the simple fact of the matter is that I consider these guys to all be very good friends, and uh, you know, it's just great to be able to spend that week playing a game that you like against people that you like. And, you know, um, there's really, I don't know, I think there's a lot of camaraderie. There's a lot of, you know, good things that come out of it and more friendships that are built, you know, tighter and hearing, you know. There, there's just so many bad jokes told, mainly by Owen. But at the same time, like, it, it's just, I don't know. There's just something about it where, like, I come out of it just feeling, like, happy. Like, th- this was just a good experience. And even though a lot of the testing, actually, that's been done in those houses, you know, the week prior to the tournaments has really not actually been that productive. It'd be hard to keep a bunch of people, you know, who are mostly in their, like, 20s or very early 30s to stay on task when, you know, there's so much opportunity to do so many other things or, you know, to build fun decks or crazy stuff that Conley builds. Um, you know, I think that we've struggled to be super productive in the houses themselves, but at the same time, like, you're learning a lot of stuff. Like, even when we haven't come out of the house with the actual deck we were going to play, you know, in the last couple tournaments, like Worlds, you know, we didn't settle on the deck. We ended up playing three different decks, actually, like Caw, Blue Black, and the Vampire's deck that I top-aided with, you know, were three different decks that our group ended up playing, and we didn't necessarily have any of them, like, fine-tuned before we actually got to Japan, despite spending a week in California beforehand. And the same thing with, like, Paris, where we built tons of different decks. Like, But there was a lot of goofing off. There's a lot of people just wanting to draft. And so we didn't actually, I mean, obviously Paris, we completely broke the format. The Cowboy deck was absolutely just unbelievable. And so, you know, that ended up working out really well, but we didn't necessarily have, like, Stoneforge Mystics weren't, like, a lock to be four of in the deck before we were actually in France. And so... The testing is, like, moderately productive, I think, more than being fantastic. But, you know, the good times, I think, are more important than the magic results anyway. Speaking of Owen, he's having a remarkable year this year. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the change in Owen that you hear from people like Luis and Ocho and things like that, how this is the year he's just really stepped forward? Uh, Yeah, for sure. Um, Owen is young. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's the youngest one on our team. If not, he's certainly close. Like, I think that there was, you know, a bit of an issue with immaturity and just, 
probably somewhat cockiness and just because he was by far the best player in his area, you know, living in Wisconsin and where there are plenty of good players, but you know, he, I think it's easy to get a big head. I think I've been in the exact same spot when I was, you know, at a similar age where, you know, you, I think you almost feel entitled in a way. And I think that there are other people in our group that have probably felt similarly at, at various times, you know, someone like Conley who came into magic and just had so much success right off the bat and then kind of hit a dry spell and it's, you know, it can be hard to deal with. And so I think that you've seen just tons and tons and tons of growth and players like Owen and Conley and just, I think playing against the, you know, the other best players in the world, which, you know, frankly, you know, not to sound conceited, but I think that our group is the best players in the world. I mean, there's a handful here and there that, you know, are also amazing players, but I mean, you're talking about, you know, absolutely 12 of the top notch players. And so, you know, you're not going to have the same success playtesting against them. You're not going to necessarily have, you know, the best ideas all the time because other people have great ideas too. And so I think it is a little bit humbling. I think you start realizing some of your own weaknesses. And once you start doing that, it allows you to become a better player. And so, you know, it's just opened up, I think, someone like Owen's mind quite a bit. And at this point, you know, he is absolutely one of the very best players in the world. And so he's been able to build that confidence against, you know, other of the best players in the world and now is having the success that, you know, I think that he's been wanting to have for a long time and it's very much deserved. Ironically, I'm from Wisconsin. So the only person in the state of Wisconsin that can challenge him right now is Patrick Chapin. So uh, otherwise, outside of that, that, well, there's Sam Black and Brian Kowal, Madison, but he usually hangs around the Milwaukee area. I would say Bob Maher can always challenge anyone. Oh, that too. But like I said, it's interesting to see. I've run into him numerous times, and it just—he's not taking this like it's big. Like this is something that he's real humble about it, and mm-hmm. I think that says something about what you were talking about just a minute ago about how working with you guys has changed everything. Yeah, I think that's the case. You've talked about your black red vampire deck mm-hmm. that you had success with. Is that a deck that fits your style of play of magic? Um, I don't think that I can really be very well pigeonholed. I think that um, a lot of the reason why I was so interested in joining this group and why I've stayed with this group, despite some of the other opportunities that you know have been, been presented to me and other people who have asked to you know me to work with them, is someone like Luis. And I think that the way Luis goes about magic and especially finding his deck for a tournament is very similar to me. And I think that having that style makes, you know, us working together so great. Like he wants to play the best deck. It can be combo. It can be mono red burn deck. It can be a complete control deck with one win condition. It doesn't matter. It's the best deck for the tournament. Like that's what he wants to play. And it doesn't, you know, the style is completely irrelevant. And I feel the exact same way. Like if I were to choose a deck, you know, in a vacuum, it's going to be a more controlling deck because I think it gives me, you know, an opportunity to outplay people, which, you know, is the same. I think if you ask anyone who has had a lot of success besides Paul Ritzel, then they're going to tell you that, you know, that's more the deck that they're going to be looking to play. Like, if you have a choice, you want a deck where, you know, you can get your opponents to make more mistakes and there's more room to play than a deck that has, you know, 40 lightning bolts and 20 mountains. Like, there's no room to outplay anyone. So... You know, I'm, I'm going to lean to play that deck if, if it's possible. It's going to be the first deck I'm going to look at. But at the same time, like, if nobody can beat the 40 Lightning Bolt deck, there's no chance of me playing anything else. Like, that's, I, I don't care. Like, I, I want to win. I'm beginning to notice when your comment about the circle of friends you deal with, the little jab you had there at Paul, he's an interesting character. I had him on for a MetaMagic interview, and He's got so much with work and all these things going around and, you know, his love for Boston. I have made fun of him plenty about this year's Boston Red Sox. Oh. Um, and I will make fun of him every time that, you know, the Red Sox or the Patriots fail, obviously. You know, being a big Patriots fan, it's not as much fun being a Jets fan. I can't really make fun of him much. Nor does it really help that, you know, the Red Sox are still quite a bit better than the Mets are, but... Not much I can do about that. All I can do is laugh at their failures because 
I hate the Yankees and I hate the Red Sox and I hate the Patriots. And so uh, I'll, I'll cheer for them to lose and take a lot of enjoyment in epic September collapses, but uh, it can only go so far when your own team can't finish 500. Speaking of that and their collapse, they, they're letting their general manager go, who won two World Series with them. They let, they're letting their manager go. Doesn't the blame for most of this stuff fall to the, the 25 man roster plus the nine, you know, the, the nine guys that are playing in the field at any one time? Uh, to an extent, like, I think that when a team collapses in that degree where, you know, you didn't have to even win half your games. Like, you gotta win 40% of your games and you're gonna w- make the playoffs easily. And you just failed. Like, sure, the, the players certainly played poorly, but you also had the manager changing the lineups every day. You have a lot of decisions being made at, you know, I, I really find the manager's jobs to be very challenging and interesting. Like, the more that you analyze, you know, different sports, like I was saying, I'm very into sports. Like, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made. There's a lot of, you know, little moves here and there that are going to make a big difference, especially when you talk about the game, you know, the season came down to the last day. And so there are clearly, like, thousands of different decisions that could have been done, could have been made differently in September alone, let alone the entire season, that, you know, would have reshaped everything. And so, you know, the coaching staff is also pretty responsible for trying to at least keep the players focused. And, you know, if they're not focused, they probably shouldn't be out there every day. And so there's just a lot of things at play. I mean, the bottom line is, yeah, the, if the players played better, they would have won. And, you know, bottom line is, then if you could fix that, if you could fix one thing, and yeah, you would somehow do something with the players. But, you know, those are the ones making the millions of dollars. The players or the fans aren't showing up at the stadium to watch Terry Francona. They're, there to watch, you know, Adrian Gonzalez and David Ortiz and the players on the field. And so you can't just cut your whole team because of the collapse. So, and you still have to make a change. In, in many ways, does Luis act like a pseudo manager when you guys are together? Uh, yeah, Luis is definitely like the dad of the group. He's definitely the one that people are going to look to the most. Um, he's probably, you know, more mature than everyone else as well. You know, he's, the only married one. He's the only, you know, like this is something he takes seriously and he, he's very professional about it. And obviously he's someone that is probably, uh, not even probably, like, he's definitely the most respected person in magic. Like I can't imagine anyone else being as respected as Luis is. And so when he talks, you listen, he treats everyone with respect. So you never have to worry about like, you know, getting mad at him or, you know, having to, you know, I don't know. There, there are, there are no other, none of those arguments that you might see from like a manager and a player, like everyone's fine listening to Luis. Like when he talks, it's, it's worth listening to. And he's going to, he's going to treat you the way that you deserve to be treated. He's going to treat your ideas with respect, like even Conley's, which is, you know, that's a bit hard for the rest of us to treat Conley's ideas with respect a lot. And so, you know, it's, yeah, he's definitely, you know, the person who is quote unquote supposed to be the leader. Like that's the part he was born to play and he does a great job at it. And, you know, we've all had a lot of success. Thanks, Tom. You've discussed about magic comparable to chess. But within the magic community, chess is considered an inferior game to magic. Your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I don't think that that's something that anyone can really decide. Like, you're talking about a game of perfect information versus a game that has tons of factors that involve random, you know, elements and bluffing people and, you know... Chess is a game that a computer can learn to play perfectly. Like, that's not going to happen with magic. Like, um, I, I don't know. It, it depends on what you're interested in. Like, I'm interested in having that element of variance, that element of being able to outplay my opponent, like, mentally without having the right pieces. Like, you know, a queen is always going to move the same way, but a wild mongrel can do a bunch of different things. Like, having all those options is something that appeals to me, which, you know, even though chess was a game that I found interesting when I was younger, I don't consider it to be a game that I'm as interested in playing. Uh, I would never call it an inferior game. I think in a lot of ways it's a superior game. It's a game where the best player is going to win basically every time, you know, unless something happens. And so, uh, you know, in that respect, it's very interesting. But at the same time, like, Magic just has so much more appeal and so much more mass appeal. And the fact that, you know, someone who is significantly inferior can win any match is more appealing to me than, 
you know, just having the best player win every time. So uh, I think that magic is far more interesting and far more appealing to, you know, the masses. Gary Wise wrote an article for ESPN about magic's influence on poker. There's a two-part question with this. Gary's work in magic and in the poker community has been amazing. What is it like to have someone who is a fellow crossover talent like yourself working within the poker community? Uh, Gary's great. Like He has always been very creative and very expressive in his writing, and his writing has always been, you know, something that I've enjoyed, you know, in both formats. And so, uh, you know, I think it's really interesting for, you know, I think that a lot of people have obviously crossed over from magic to poker and, you know, a few people from poker to magic because the games do kind of appeal to a similar like of people. But, um, you know, Gary's just very good at forming relationships you know, between players. And so people are always interested in giving him an interview. Like he's very approachable and, you know, very knowledgeable about his subjects and he's very well spoken. And so, you know, it's kind of just perfect for him. And, you know, the way that he writes is a style that I think that, you know, the average person or the sophisticated, like expert on a field are going to enjoy. And so, you know, his, his work is always going to, you know, be appreciated by, you know, myself and I think tons of other people. So I think, I think it's really great. Yeah, I had the pleasure to interview him early on in this series. And I talked to him afterwards for about an hour. And he gave me about seven ideas just in our con- casual conversation afterwards about things I could try, angles I could look at. And I mean, he didn't know me from anybody. And yet he did that, and I found that very much appreciative for someone who is trying to do something in the way that he's doing it, except for on this side of the table, if you'd like to call it. Well, I've, I've always viewed Gary as someone who is far more selfless than most, and so I think that his actual end goal is to promote the things that he enjoys. Like I, I don't think he would be writing about Magic before and poker now if it wasn't something that he really cared about and wasn't very interested in. And so having there be a future in, you know, whatever format it is that he's exploring is important to him. So he's going to do his part to try to make sure that happens. And also, you know, the the success of poker or magic or whatever it is that he's focusing on is essential to his livelihood. So, you know, anything that helps promote the game and, you know, promotes everything that, you know, he's about is, I think, going to be good for both him and the community. You've played against him head-to-head. Sure. Magic. How great of a player was he? Can I plead the fifth on this one? <laughs> okay. We'll pass on that one. That's fine. I'll, I'll say it. Like, uh, Gary, uh, he was a little loose, let's say. Uh, yeah, I mean, Gary was a great player sometimes. Um, he was very good at, at drafting, in particular. His, his gameplay was, you know, again, a little bit on the loose side. Um there were decks that he learned inside and out that he played better than anyone in the world. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of Mono Black Control and what was the format? It involved Torment, uh, Torment Block. Um, I can't, was it Odyssey Torment Judgment? Yeah, OTJ Constructed with Mutilates, Nanticochets, Mararis, Innocent Blood, Edicts, all that stuff. He was probably the best Mono Black player in the world. And, you know, it was it was the deck that he loved from the beginning and a deck that he worked on nonstop and, you know, knew how to play inside and out. And then there would be other times, like, you know, in the Master Series in Chicago, was constructed um, standard at the time. And I think he was playing a Naya deck and, you know, had the game completely locked up, Ravenous Bailoff and a bunch of beasts in play. His opponent couldn't win. He had a worship out at one life and his opponent had just no way to kill it in this entire deck. So the game was completely over. Again, with multiple Ravenous Baylos and Beast out, he sapped a, you know, a fetch land, lost a life, didn't realize that that killed you with Worship out and died. And, you know, Gary's, of course, also famous for in Grand Prix Philadelphia shocking a creature in response to an in-spirit with his opponent at two life. Like, lost that game. Like, he, he makes a lot of these mistakes that, uh, you're not going to see too many of the top players make too often, but at the same time, you know, I mean, he was still a great player, but, <laughs> I, I don't know. 
He was definitely a little bit looser than some of the other Hall of Fame members. But he was also, I gotta give him credit, cause I didn't realize this as much at the time when I played, you know, 10 years ago, that honesty and integrity were not as big a part of the game back then. Like, people were cheating far more back then than they were today, which I think is part of the reason why, you know, I'm having more success now that I came back last year, is that I, I've never cheated, and I've never thought about cheating, and nor did I really think about my opponents cheating. And so it's not really something I looked for. And so I would consistently make top 16s and lose the same players in the last round of a bunch of these pro tours and kind of wondering, why can I not close? What is going on? Like, am I just not mulliganing right? How am I getting manuscript all the time? What is going on? And so Gary was definitely, like, you know, the pillar of honesty and integrity for Magic players back then. Like, he would call a judge on himself anytime he did something even slightly questionable. And, you know, I have just a ton of respect for people like that. You know, Patrick Chapin is the exact same way today. You know, obviously he wasn't playing as much back then when I first got involved, but, you know, he's very much the same way today. And I think that having players like that is what makes the game great. Like, I mean, those things are just so important to have people that, you know, you can trust. You've played the best Magic's had to offer. You've been through the span of past players, and now you've played with current players. If you could put together a top five, who would be on that list? Of all time? That you've played. We'll put the caveat that you've actually played. Um, well, I don't know that there's necessarily anyone that you can consider to be very good or better that I have not played besides potentially Ole Rade and Mark Justice, who I've never played against. Um, I think that there's so many different skills involved in Magic that it's hard to necessarily pinpoint who the very best are. But in no particular order, if I were going to say who my best players of all time were, I would say, I mean, no particular order except for I have John Finkel as number one, and I don't think that's especially close. But the rest, I would say Kai, Bob, Nassif, and I think number five is real close between Luis and Huey William Jensen um, for all time. I, I think that, you know, Luis is by far the best player in the game today, which, you know, none of the other players I, I named are really involved with Magic anymore. Nassif still plays, but, you know, he's kind of not what he was. Certainly doesn't dedicate nearly as much time to Magic and, you know, his results have certainly shown it the past couple of years. But, um, you know, four of those players are, are, of course, first ballot Hall of Famers, and Luis will be. But I think Huey is the most underappreciated and most unknown of the best people to ever play. Like, he was as naturally talented as anyone. Didn't really play as many years and as many tournaments as, you know, some other people did, so maybe didn't get recognized as much despite having, I think, like 10 Grand Prix top eights and, maybe four Pro Tour top eights, I'm not sure, on the actual numbers, with, you know, with a win. And so, uh, yeah, the way that he actually played the game and the speed that he was able to play it in and the way that it impacted his, the way it impacted his opponents and the way he drafted and the way he team drafted, you know, all that stuff. I I think that he is the most underappreciated player and I think that's also actually been reiterated by the other four people on the list who, you know, gave him huge endorsements for Hall of Fame votes this year, saying that it was a travesty that he didn't make it in across the board. And so, uh, yeah, I'd say that, you know, some combination of those five are the best five. I agree. Him not in the Hall of Fame is just an absolute travesty to magic, just because of how wonderful of a person he is, as well as being a phenomenal magic player. I think that a lot of people who play today just don't know him. They've never played him. They, they, they just don't know and um, I do think that he rubs the people the wrong way back when he did play. You know, we're also talking about 10 years ago. Like, the guy was, you know, a teenager. And so, you know, and he was arrogant because he, he was one of the best. Like, and he had every right to be arrogant for, you know, that. But, you know, it's going to rub some people the wrong way. And, uh, you know, I think it just comes down to people not having played him. And so I do think he'll get in the Hall of Fame at some point. Um, I think that the same things certainly happened to Steve-O where, you know, just people didn't know. They, like, they've never seen Steve-O. Like, he stopped playing more than 10 years ago. Like, the players who are playing today and most people who had a ballot just don't even know who he is. And so t- this year he obviously got in rather easily because, you know, a lot of his friends from back then, you know, really campaigned and 
Watsy knows the impact he's had and, uh, you know, he got plenty of votes that way. And so he was able to make it, you know, many years after he should have. But, you know, it's going to happen eventually. And I think the same thing will end up happening with Huey. But, you know, it's just it's just part of the process. It's kind of, you know, the Hall of Fame has a lot of issues as far as how people are getting in. And so none of them are necessarily easily fixed. But what can you do? Today's game of Magic's changed. There's now, at GP's, 1,500-plus players. Uh, the Pro Tour seems to be more challenging. Is winning now more relevant than it was, say, back when you started playing? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's... I, I don't know how that would necessarily make sense. Like, I don't think that hitting a home run today is more relevant than it was 10 years ago, necessarily. Like, it's harder in a lot of ways because the fields are so big. Um, I actually find the competition, strangely enough, to be easier than it was 10 years ago, despite the fields being smaller. I think that Grand Prix, you could have more success. Of course, there weren't as many back then, and they really didn't offer very much as far as prize support or pro tour points back then. I think you got six points for winning a Grand Prix. But, you know, you were playing seven rounds on day one with three buys. You know, it became it was certainly not necessarily the hardest to make day two. You need to go two and two, but um, yeah, today, like I don't know, it's the same kind of question that we pose with poker. That you know, if you take a field of two hundred of the best players in the world, and you know, you play a poker tournament, your odds of winning go up dramatically than versus a two thousand person field. However, your odds of doing well are not like your odds of making the top. 10% are going to be far better in the huge field because you're playing against players who are far inferior than you for the better part of the tournament. Like you could certainly get the bad pairings and play against the best players in the 3-0 and 3-1 bracket, you know, coming off your buys. But there's so many players who, you know, are less experienced Magic players who, you know, are playing this tournament because, you know, there aren't 1,500 good players. There's 1,500 people playing. You know, maybe, you know, a small handful of them are really good and another group is, you know, a fair amount above average, but you're going to be playing against people who, you know, don't take magic as seriously, don't necessarily take their decks as seriously, who, you know, are, you know, there to have fun, you know, is their number one concern and winning is kind of secondary. And so, you know, being able to have success and make those consistent, like top 32s, I think is a lot easier. Like if you look at my year in magic, my last 11 events, I've cashed in 10 of them. I mean, we're talking about all these events are 450-person pro tours and 1,500-person GPs. And so that doesn't seem like something you should do very easily, like make top 64 is what you need to cash. And the only tournament I didn't cash in, I started off 6-0 and and went 0-3, losing, you know, game three and three rounds in a row, mulling the five with my mono-red deck in Atlanta, you know, an attempt to try to play burn for the first time ever didn't go so well. But uh, every other tournament, I've been able to find my way to the paycheck at the end. And so that's certainly not something that I was ever coming close to doing back then. Now, you finished fifth at Chiba. What would winning a world championship at Magic mean to you? Oh, it would mean, I, I don't even know, a lot. Um, strangely enough, you asked earlier about the Poker Hall of Fame. The Magic Hall of Fame would mean quite a bit more to me. I do feel like the Magic community is more my peers I think than the poker community um, you know you, you see the same magic players at all the tournaments they really become like good friends like all of my friends who are poker players I think I've met through magic or you know play magic in some capacity that I hang out with them and so I don't really have a lot of people that I consider close friends who are just poker players while all of my best friends in the world are magic players and so um you know, it's just a community that I feel very close to that means a lot to me. And so being able to have success at a game that, you know, I really enjoy. Like, I mean, I've skipped some huge poker tournaments where I had, you know, basically a lot of free money on the line to play much smaller Magic tournaments. Like Nationals last year was the same time as the WPT at the bike, which is just a great event. And it's, you know, a tough conflict to try to decide what to play. But Magic is just, I'm playing it for fun. Like, it's, it's just a fun game. It's not my job. You know, it's absolutely a hobby for me, but it's something that, you know, I'm only doing because it's something I very much enjoy doing. And so I don't really take it very seriously, but having success is 
still just, you know, like with anything that you do, having success in it is really fun. And so being able to do well at a tournament as big as Worlds, you know, especially this year where it's, you know, going to be back in America and I, I don't know, like it would just be really great. Like it's something that there are very few things that I would enjoy more than winning Worlds, like in the entire world, including like, you know, doing well at poker tournaments. That right there is a great statement of what the game means, to, what the game has done and meant to you. To get the actual inside feel of that, you can't get it from watching it on computer. It's just not the same. Because they were talking about last year when had the Paulo Guillaume match, had Paulo won, he would have been player of the year, and Guillaume went on to tie, and there was Brad Nelson sitting with, uh, I forget who he was sitting with, and they were just sitting on the edge of their seats watching every play because it meant everything. I think that was exaggerated because Brad was sitting next to me and couldn't watch. He couldn't. He was he was biting his well. What happened? In the semifinals, he would keep getting updates. Like he was playing, you know, a side draft with you know a bunch of friends and kept getting updates. And then was just playing so bad in the side draft. He's like, I can't play this. I can't watch. I don't know what to do. Like he was trying to find something to distract him so he didn't have to watch. And then, you know, finally started to like creep over and check every now and then. And it was, it was a weird scene to say the least. Brad's a, a unique character in the world of magic. He, his personality, it's funny because when I was at Grand Prix Denver, he came up to Rashad, who does Gigi's Live, and like said, I need to slap your hand high five. And Rashad looks at him and goes, why? I said, because the last time I did that, I won. One of those fun interactions you get from the magic community that a lot of people don't understand that I find really fascinating. It says a lot about the personalities and the subculture within magic, especially at the highest level. Brad's a character, that's for sure. (laughs) I think he he only said that to try to brag about the fact that he won last time, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Is there anything else you would like to promote or talk about? Anything like that for it? Stop recording? Um, not really. I mean, the thing that, you know, some of the clips that you're talking about, some of the interviews that I've done about Magic and Poker, it's going to be a movie coming out, but I, I don't really even have all the details yet. There's going to be a documentary about poker that's being done by uh, Bluff Oaks, and, you know, I, I got to spend a few days out in Seattle at Richard Garfield's house because they wanted to, you know, show some ways that poker players have gotten, you know, into the game. And what kept coming up with all their interviews, people kept mentioning magic, and they had no idea what that was. And so they ended up, you know, seeking out me and David Williams, you know, to try to talk about, you know, how this happens. Like, what is it about magic? Like, why are all of these, you know, great poker players saying they got their start in magic? And so, you know, hopefully the movie will come out good. It'll be interesting, you know, documentary-style movie. And, uh, you know, we'll see. They're supposed to have the red cover premiere out here in Vegas in a couple of weeks, so... uh We'll see if that's interesting. And, you know, some of the interviews about me talking about the transition from magic to poker and the different intricacies are, you know, available on my Facebook and on their website for post Oak Bluffs. So you guys can check some of that stuff out. Real quick, you talked about David Williams, another person like yourself who magic, poker, and, I mean, he'll, he goes to the extremes of if he doesn't day two, that he goes flying on a flight at 6 in the morning to get to another tournament. What is it like work and play with David? Uh, Dave's insane, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I don't recommend red-eyeing into... Especially because the last time he did it at the GP, then red-eyeing in to go play a poker tournament, I don't know how you're supposed to play with that, you know. I, I don't know how you stay focused, and obviously the first day didn't go so well for him, uh, I don't know how I could have even managed to sign up, let alone actually compete. But, uh, you know, he's, he's a character, and he's a good guy, and we've been friends, obviously, for a long time. And now he lives next door to me, and, you know, we live in the same building in Vegas. And so certainly hang out a lot, and we usually travel to all the poker and match tournaments together. So and that's good to have, you know, that good friendship with someone and someone that you can count on and who has the you know, same kind of interest as you and makes dealing with stuff and you know, all the travel and dealing with booking hotels and flights and stuff like that when you have someone else to kind of, like, split the duties with you makes it a little bit easier. And I don't know. Now that he's a dad, 
How much has that affected him? Has it changed him? I, I don't think that you're going to meet anyone who doesn't change. Like, I mean, I can't necessarily speak from experience. Obviously, I'm not a dad yet, but at the same time, like, it's going to be a pretty strange person you meet that is unaffected by going and becoming a father. I think that, you know, your responsibility is changing. The reason you do things changes, how you want to allocate your time because you want to spend so much time with your baby girl. You know, that stuff's going to change. And, you know, like the whole meaning behind your life, your responsibilities, everything is so warped at that point that, you know, there's going to be some changes and they're going to be pretty dramatic. And, you know, I, I think for the most part, they're all better changes. So I, I think it's a good thing, but yeah, there's definitely uh, going to be a pretty stout difference. Yeah, he's one of the people that have been, I've been communicating with him off and on, but he's so busy to get him to tie down to do this. <laughs> it's it's funny because a lot like yourself, I mean, these are the kind of cross-sections of magic that I really enjoy because we talked about Paul earlier, and he has a 50-hour-a-week job that he does, and it's all the little things that a real great player can still be great, but yet have all these different things going on, like you with poker and uh, you know Paul with his job, and, and just to see all these different things and yet still be able to play at the highest level. Right. Those are the kind of things that really fascinate me. But I do appreciate it. And thank you for listening to The Metamagic. You can contact me at themetamagic at gmail.com, on Twitter under The Metamagic, or my personal account, The Beamy. This is Robert Martin, and again, thank you for listening. Joe.